Hello again, everyone. This is Jay and Zhao together again for Enterprise Linux Security, and now we're up to episode 35, surprisingly. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. Um, hi, Jay. As always, it's a pleasure to be here with you for another episode. And today we're going to be taking a look at the CISA Top 25 CWE, and CWE stands for let me see, common weakness enumeration, which is a fancy way of saying we're going to be looking at the top 25 uh, code vulnerabilities that do get exploited. So Some of these when you seem see... like the, the top 25 boneheaded mistakes, but I don't, know what, <laughs> I don't think they wanted to call it nah. that. And some of these are, are not that, but a lot of them are. <laughs> no. Nah. A few months back, I came up with something that... Uh, I came up. It's not my idea, obviously, but... Uh, we really suck at writing code, uh, but given the amount of code that people produce every single day, give, it might not be that. It might just be that the, the mistakes just stand out much more outside of the, the norm. But anyway, we're going to be looking at the top 25 mistakes that are done by, by programmers and developers and coders, however you want to call them, and then lead to the CVs that you get worried about. The idea here of looking at this is that most often you'll look at a new vulnerability it affects say apache or nginx or something like that but you never quite understand what the actual problem behind it is it just says that okay now people can access your server and get into your server and do nasty stuff but you don't fully understand the problem behind it and with this list the guys from CISA, they try to, to point out okay this problem is due to this mistake in code to and we'll see that many of those are common among multiple vulnerabilities. But uh, um, before we dive into that, there was something that popped up into my Twitter feed today, and I found it quite interesting because I had never even considered this to be a problem. Um, do you ever consider the, the order on your email to uh, field, the, the order that you put people in there if you're sending to multiple recipients? I have not really paid too much attention to that, to be honest, other than making sure the people that, that are in there are the people that I want to be in there. Yeah, okay. The same here. I, I've never even remotely even considered that to be a sink. In fact, and now that I thought about it, um, I always thought that the order that you were shown when you were opening an email message on your web browser or on your email client was just the ordering that the, the UI for that particular application would give you. It wasn't the, the hard-coded order on the email. And today I saw this message on Twitter about the guy complaining that his uh, manager had called him aside and uh, scolded him for putting the manager's email after somebody else well, when it should have been before that person on the list. And that just blew my mind. So apparently this is a cultural thing. This is very important in, say, and I don't want to sound nasty here, so I won't name the, the places that they got on that team, on that Twitter thread, but apparently some countries, they do look up to the, the list and the ordering, and they want the more important people at the beginning, and then, say, for seniority or for position or something like that. And apparently the ordering on those fields do matter, not just two, but CC as well. And that completely blew my mind. I never even considered yeah. that to be a thing. And the reason I'm bringing this up here on the, the Enterprise podcast is that if, it's, if people get hung up on small stuff like this, how are we ever going to get them to use proper security practice? How are we ever going to convince them that they need to change password policies, for example? Right, 
Right. That is that is true. I mean, I, I do feel a lot of times working in corporate America that I've been in situations where I'm like, okay, this matters as much as they, you know, they're they're saying it matters. Like, why? And and is it really that big of a deal? Um, but I, I haven't heard that one in particular before. I I have, I do remember one time where. Um, if I remember correctly, the director of operations, and this is when I first started working, like very early in my career, um, actually banned thank yous. Literally banned thank yous. Like um, something about it being an unnecessary message is just, you know, just going to clog up something and it's a waste of time. Just, just, I'm like, you, you should thank people. It, it, it's fine. <laughs> you, you can thank people. It's okay. It's not going to, no, no email server in the world is going to have a problem with yeah. thank you emails. But that, on the other hand, is another level. And I agree. That's going to absolutely, um, you know, calling someone aside for that. I mean, yeah. what could they have done in that time that they were having that meeting? Uh, the human element here, the people getting hung up on the wrong things and not considered the time he spent getting annoyed by not being on the proper order for that person and the work that he went to to get the employee aside and talk to him and explain and go through all the motions on all this, it's just absurd. It makes no sense at all. But apparently this well, is a thing. Yeah, but I mean, it's also a thing too that if, you, you know, you have to treat people nice. I mean, I know I shouldn't have to say that, but it should be common yeah. sense at this point. But if an employee feels like they're being heckled about petty things over and over and over again, while well the, you know, their job might be something for IT security or something that, you know, actually matters to the future of the company, um, it's just going to lower the, the mood, right? And then they might just not feel that, you know, desire to go the extra mile for the company either and just, okay, well, yeah, I'm not going to, Look, I'm not going to make sure this report is done early because, yeah, I don't want to um, do anything for that guy. Um, but then would they go the extra mile a lot less for security just because the the mood is like everyone's, you know, feel, they feel like they're walking on eggshells, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. My immediate response to that actually matched one of the replies on that thread. Um, from some sysadmin that uh, was replying to the thread and he said that if this had happened to me, I would have immediately written a randomizer uh, plugin to the email server just to switch all the email, the two fields around on all messages That's for so this great. person. Yeah, but it's amazing. That is great. <laughs> but, you know, the only, the only pet peeve I have, and I never, and I'll mention this just because it's funny, but I don't really care. I don't want to make it sound like I actually care. I just find it humorous that in one email thread, one single email thread that consists of multiple messages, every single person starts it with, hi, Bob, you know, hi, Sue. So in a conversation like I'm having with you, I'm not going to say, you know, hi, Jow, let's look at number five. Hi, Jow, let's look at number 12 now. Hi, Jow, let's look at number three. Why do people say hello in every single message in an email string? I'll never understand why. It's just okay. not how a conversation flows. I'm guilty as charged on that one. I just I, I do it because everyone else does it. I'm like they're probably they'll probably think I'm rude or something if I don't. You know, actually on Gmail, it will immediately suggest the hi or the hey or something like that as soon as you start typing. So it's just a matter of pressing tab and moving on. Regardless, we've yeah. spent enough we time on this. Have a whole, whole podcast <laughs> yeah. about office annoyances or something. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to actually do that podcast. So please don't ask us to. But we could, but we won't. 
Okay. So let's go into the, um, the actual code vulnerabilities here and start looking at the interesting yeah. stuff. So the first one, and this should come as no surprise because it's at the core of many vulnerabilities, is an out-of-bounds write. An out-of-bounds write is uh, a buffer overflow, basically. It's when you when the developer asks the, the computer to reserve, say, space for five elements and then tries to write to element number six. And what that does is that you're going to be writing to some place that was not intended to. And in most cases, you'll end up overwriting values that you were not wanting to overwrite. Um, this is at the root of many, many, many vulnerabilities out there. Uh, basically, it's either a bounce check that is missing or is just uh, improperly counted, or somebody designed the application, say, to receive 40 characters at one place and never actually checks to see if he got 40 characters and then he tries to write 400, for example. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, Microsoft Teams was hit by something like this. And they even gave it a funny name, um, where if you entered, uh, I don't know, 2,000, 4,000 characters or something like that on a specific field on Teams, you would make it uh, run the code that you wanted it to run because it would overwrite a lot of uh, structures inside. And yeah, this is the mistake that's at the root of those those issues. Yeah, that's a very common one. Um, I think it might may have been the first or one of the first that I've ever heard of. If I'm not mistaken, but I think it, it when I first heard of it, it was all about database servers. Not that it isn't that now; it still is. But um, I think that was definitely the focus back then. Um, and you know, another thing that. Um, is interesting about buffer overflows is that sometimes they work for the good of mankind. It's rare. It's very rare. But the original Crash Bandicoot for the PlayStation used a buffer overflow to access memory that the developer couldn't normally access, not because they wanted to do anything bad. They just wanted to use that memory for the game. That's all. They just wanted to make the game better, and they wanted to go outside the bounds of the PlayStation's memory to access additional memory. And that caused them to be able to do things with the game that they weren't able to do. So developers are, you know, I feel like really good developers will uh, do that on purpose, <laughs> you know, and, and at least <laughs> the game development, right? They're not going to make that in a web, web server. But I remember even as far back as the Super Nintendo, people were going outside bounds. And now those people grow up and, they, you know, they enter the <laughs> IT field. And then next thing you know, they're finding flaws in, you know, big servers. Yeah. So um, a common way to to, come, to get around this, um, of course, introducing the the bound checks is a, is the right way to do it. But there is also the concept of a canary, um, a canary in the mine code. So one that dies before all the miners get uh, affected by the gas. So there is this concept in programming where you place a second variable right next to the one that you want to protect, and you check if that value changes after you write to the first one. If it changes, then something went out of bounds and wrote where it didn't, and you should immediately abort the executing the program. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's yeah. there's definitely some good ways to solve these problems. And as we go through the list, um, I don't think we're probably going to read everything on the list. We'll definitely pick out the best ones, but these are yeah. things to keep in mind. You know, real things that happen in applications that are developed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if you follow the link that we're going to be posting with the, with the podcast, you'll see the list of vulnerabilities that actually stem from this mistake and the others as well. But it's pretty comprehensive. They did a very good job on 
creating this list, they went over 38,000 vulnerabilities over the past two years. That's a lot of stuff to, to go wrong. Wow. Um, uh, that's yeah. a lot of rush development teams. <laughs> it's either that or it's just the, the law of numbers. If you have a million applications being produced and you come up with 38,000 vulnerabilities on two years, it's one thing. If it's just a much smaller number than that, then that's a different thing. Yeah, no, you're definitely right. I just feel like, you know, and I've seen this where you have managers that want something out the door. The engineers don't feel it's ready yet. So it's like, why why isn't this shipped yet? We have a problem with MySQL. Well, use someone else's SQL and get it shipped. <laughs> I see that one going into the next uh, Dead Joke Linux. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> okay, the second one on the list, improper neutralization of input during web page generation, which is, an, again, another fancy way of saying cross-site scripting. Um, this is actually a pretty interesting technique in that you can trick somebody into believing that the web page has a, appears in a given way, say, like your web banking application, mm-hmm. when, in fact, it's a different web page, say, the attacker or something like that. Um, and this is even further extended if through this you can actually modify a data on the, the backend server. And this makes it very dangerous if that is the case. If that is not the case, if you're only show, changing the way that it appears to the end user, the scope is limited, but you can still fool the end user. And that has all the associated risks with it. So, yep. um, if at your company you're supposed to submit a form for a government uh, portal or something like that, and somebody is fooled into doing that on a different website, you're probably submitting information that shouldn't be in the public to someone that's not supposed to access it. And it can be done through this. And apparently this is uh, prevalent enough to be ranked number two on this list, which is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah, if it's if it's high on this list, it's definitely something to pay attention to because they did, so you should too. Yeah. Um, and the thing here is that we're trying to give you a, a brief summary of what this actually means in real-world terms, um, but this shouldn't be restricted just to you as the audience. If you're part of an IT team and at your company, you should probably propagate this to your end users so that they get some information as well on things that can go wrong and things that do happen when they are not supposed to be happening this way um, while they do their own, their own work. And the next one is another fan favorite, which has another fancy name, improper neutralization of special elements used in a SQL command, also called SQL injection. Um, this is really nice. This is when you actually type SQL code directly into a field and it gets executed directly. So there is no pre-processing of the data that gets fed into the application looking for this. There is, you simply take the value that you receive and you pass it to the database backend. That always ends up being a mistake. Yeah, it definitely Um, does. um, So talking about SQL injection. A few years back, when RFID tags were a thing and were starting to appear, um, there was this attack that was pretty interesting. Um, You would actually get the the SQL code into the identifier of a tag. And because the 
the code that was reading the tag information was not expecting it to contain SQL. It was never protected against it. So each time it would scan an, a new RFID tag, it will immediately feed that to the database. And something like drop asterisk is pretty small and can fit into one of those identifiers. So you could get these kill tags that would be scanned and kill the database immediately. And that was amazing. Wow. Yeah. OK, so the next one, improper input validation. Um, this one feeds into all of the ones above it. Um, right. It's basically when you just accept what you're given by a user or by a file or some other external factor and just take it at face value. You, do not, you don't do any pre-processing on the input. You just accept what it is and you act upon it. Um, Especially this, you know, a, a field that should only be alpha alphabet characters and then users putting numbers, but way worse than that. That's how it starts. Yeah. It just goes off the rails from there. Or even the other way around, expecting just numbers and getting fed characters, uh, letters, for example, and then trying to insert that in the database on a field that is only supposed to take numbers, and then it stuff breaks where you're not expecting it. Um, this yep. is usually something that is caught during unit testing while developing. But not everybody does proper unit testing, and it's not always easy to mock all the classes and all of that. So this can go and does get into production software. Yep. Next, we have the, the counterpart to the first one, which is out-of-bounds read. The first one was out-of-bounds write, where you would corrupt um, adjacent memory space while because you were writing too much. This one is trying to read more than you're supposed to. So if a variable says holds 10 characters, you're trying to read, say, 100 or something like that. If the program lets you, if they don't do the bound checks on the read either, you can get information, say, passwords, say, uh, secrets, say, SSH keys, something like that that might be adjacent in memory. And this is actually something that's very, very used for information exfiltration. So when you see vulnerabilities that say that they have the ability to read data that's not supposed to access memory from other processes, for example, probably it's exploiting something like this. Was that Rowhammer, if I remember correctly? It was something like this, yes. Yeah, I'm pretty oh. sure. I remember Rowhammer was allowing people to access memory yeah. that they shouldn't have been able to. That was one that only Rowhammer was was more at the hardware level where they were just trying to repeatedly access uh, um, specific sections of memory at the hardware level. But the, mm -hmm. the idea was the same: getting more access to more memory than what, what the, you otherwise would would have. The next one is again an improper neutralization of special elements used in o, in an OS command. So basically, um, sorry, I can't, I can't help it. I'm so sorry. I'm, is it too soon? Is it too soon? I'm sorry. So yes, basically Atlassian. Um, <laughs> this is the core for remote code execution. Um, you're supposed to be passing, say, your name, and you're passing your name, and then say um, rm slash. Um, and that is being fed to the, the command shell and gets executed. Um, again, the, the description that these guys give, it's improper neutralization. It's actually pretty descriptive. Um, this is exactly what it says in the tin. You're not looking at the input. You're not validating it to make sure that you're not taking more than you're supposed to and you're accepting something that's weird in that context. Um, yep. Again, doing these types of checks, it's just extra code. It's more things that you need to, to write into the code. If you're just wanting to get this, say, a user's first and last name, 
why bother to do all of this, right? But the thing is, this is then what gets attacked on your application. You should always protect your input fields. This is like basic programming 101, but we're still doing this and we're doing this at scale. And it's at the heart of programming, I think, because, um, yeah, it's a security issue, but it's also other things too. You you kind of expect the user to try to do something that they shouldn't do, and then worse, you know, outside attackers are absolutely doing things that they're not supposed to be able to do. But between users and outside threat actors, it's um, it's always one or the other. It could be, um, you know, there, there's a, a, a stupid joke, and I'm sure this didn't happen, but uh, where a, a password hash was so long and an administrator asked the user, why is your password the longest when the user wasn't even te a technical user? It was someone who's at the, you know, very beginning level not somebody you would think would have a really long, randomly generated password. And then the person's like, well, what do you mean it's too long? It's seven characters in the capital. It's Huey, Dewey, Louie, Mickey, Minnie, Mouse, Sacramento. <laughs> You're on <laughs> the road that's, today. That's, that's a really long input, but um, obviously <laughs> this isn't that. But then you can have somebody, you know, that's on the user side, but then you can have somebody, you know, alternately putting a very long command in a text field and all of a sudden... It's, uh, yeah, your data's going away, or worse. You're on a road today. You're planning the next dead joke, Linux, for sure. I, um, you know, with, with my, with, with it being summer and, you know, my kids are home from school and they're jumping up and down upstairs, I have to have humor to get through the day. <laughs> <laughs> it really helps. It does. Um, okay, the next one use after free. Um, this is, again, um, convoluted way to say that you have a variable, you make you point it to null, and then you try to read it again. Um, that always leads to unexpected results because you're not sure of what the of what the computer is going to do with that, if you're going to get anything at all back, if you're going to get a mistake, if you're going to put the machine in a state where it cannot recover from, so it will crash. Um, lots of weird things can happen, and it will basically depend on the architecture of the computer that you try this on. Um, Use after free is uh, especially dangerous in languages like C that rely on pointers. It's basically, the description is exactly that, is when your pointer is pointing to null and then you try to do something with it again. Um, mm -hmm. Again, this is really, this is a problem for two reasons. First, for um, multi-core systems, which are basically any system right now, um, where you have multiple threads assessing the same variables, where one thread will clear it and another one will try to do something with it, and it happens in order, um, uh, one after the other. And whenever the use is after the, the pointer is freed, you have that issue come up. Again, it might not come up during testing, but in production, given enough people using the application, it will undoubtedly surface. Yep, that's what I've heard of a lot too, actually. Yeah. Especially with C, I've worked in um, in the middle of dev teams using C, so a lot. Of, so it's kind of interesting when I look at this, and I see null pointer dereference, yep, I've seen that happen. Yeah. Next, we have improper limitation of a pass name to a restricted directory, aka pass reversal. Um, this is when you could you can place, say, for example, um, a URL to a website, and then you put at the end slash dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot slash etc slash password, and you get back the password file. Um, this is pass reversal, is when you can read files that you're not supposed to from your application. 
Um, so basically, if your application is running inside of a directory, you should have some control over the files that you can access from it, um, especially if you're looking at that, uh, that pass somewhere that is fed from the outside, say on a URL where the, it's passed from a user, or when you're reading it from a file, or when you're receiving it through an API call from another application or something like that, it goes all back to the same. You should always sanitize the, the inputs that your, that your application has. I've seen this. Um, I'm, not, I'm sure it's not 100% effective. But I, I've seen in Debian and Ubuntu, at least, at the default config files of Apache, when you just install Apache without any, you know, before you actually modify anything, I've noticed that they actually have something in there that prevents going outside the, um, the hosted directory. And uh, that only goes so far, obviously, but if it's in the defaults in Apache, it's being used quite a bit. So, um, absolutely. And it's on this list. So, um, these, these are only the common cases, but uh, say, for example, at the time when you had CGI um, handlers on Apache or something like that, most of them would be vulnerable to something like this. CGI would accept the parameters from the URL or as uh, post variables, but they would accept something like this because they simply didn't check to, to see if they could read that file or not. They would feed you that and it would be okay. Um, but this isn't so something that only happened in the past. This is actually still something that we see today. And even at Xero, when we're preparing patches, we see errors like this crap up a lot, unfortunately. Um, applications just not limiting. And it doesn't even have to be something that comes out from the, the user. It might just be following symlinks, for example. Um, if your application tries to read from a symlink that exists inside of that directory and mm -hmm. it follows then a pass to a completely different place on the file system, um, this still applies. It's still pass reversal. You're still reading from somewhere that you shouldn't. Um, and that's one way to break out of jails, for example. Uh, we use change root a lot and uh, jails on Linux to, to lock applications down and to lock users down. Um, Sometimes, if they find a way out of there, it's usually through pass reversal. We also use it to fix a Linux installation. If we boot into a live mode, we want to recover something. We want to see it root into the yeah. actual installation to remove a package that was recently installed or whatever shenanigans um, happen to cause a server not to behave. So it's also something that non-hackers use day to day because they want to just access that installation. So that knowledge, I would feel is pretty widespread on both sides. Yeah, it should be. Okay, next we have cross-site request forgery, CSRF. Um, this is when one site tries to mess with the, the output that another one is producing. Um, I can't give you any examples of this being used at the moment. I don't have any at the top of my head. I don't know if you do. Um, no, I can't think that I do. Um, I, I, I feel like these types of things are all part of a you know, an approach that outside threat actors have where they either try to trick you into signing into your bank where one letter, maybe an L, they change to one or they change one of the characters that kind of looks like the original character. So you don't really notice firsthand. I mean, that's the lowest level. And then it goes on from there, man in the middle or cross-site scripting, just basically trying to get the user to think that they're on the site or all the communication underneath is happening to the same site, which may not always be true. And if I'm not mistaken, it's these that would trigger the um, 
warning that you sometimes get in a browser where you have like a let's just say you have an image that's not um, TLS in the address, but the rest of your site is coming from a different one. It'd be like mixed content warnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, moving on. Unrestricted upload of file with dangerous type. This is fun. This is when your website or application has an upload form somewhere, or you're letting your users upload their photo or something like that, and then you don't check to see if the what you're getting is actually a photo. So you might get a script, or you might get an executable or something like that. And by itself, this might not be so, so dangerous, because whatever is uploaded then has to be executed for it to become actually malicious, or else it's just right. code resting there. But this is usually used to, to escalate privileges. If you find one of the other vulnerabilities and you need to get your payloads into the server to, to actually do something there on that server, this is one way to, to achieve it. If you find an upload form that's not, uh, that's not locked down, you can get your code to the web server through this. And if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, no exec and FS tab that you'd want to set, especially, I'm not saying it's going to be 100% effective. The least you can do, you know, if you have a directory that only receives photos, for example, why why would you allow executables to run from that file system? Just turn on no exec, and um, hopefully that would help out. But of course, as we know, there's always another way, right? So, yeah, yeah. that's the problem. Right. And most web servers will have protections uh, around this as well. In the web server itself, you can set the, the files that you will accept as uploads. Um, yep. Apparently, not everybody does that, or not everybody uses that, but that's a problem. Um, next, null pointer, the reference. Um, this isn't the, the use after free that I mentioned before. The other one implied that you were writing value somewhere. This one is about reading value somewhere. Um, when it's pointing to null, it's more or less the same thing. It, you'll get into the same situation where you're try, either trying to read memory that you're not allowed to, or trying to get the application into a state where it cannot recover from. Um, on the Windows side of things, this is one of the reasons where you get the blue screens of this. This is something that can cause a BSOD, is when you're trying to read a null pointer that is pointing somewhere funny because you're not supposed to be using it anymore. And the system will catch that, and it will crash because it cannot guarantee the consistency. So it will crash and try to reduce damages that way. Um, so don't be so annoyed when you see a BSOD. The system is actually trying to protect you and your data. They should have like a different color for that one or something, or maybe like a we we helped you out message or something <laughs> just to kind of make yeah. people panic less often. Yeah. Maybe they kind of should be panicking if there is something that it um, is protecting you from. That's another story, though. Yeah, that's another story. Um, they do use green, I believe, on the insider previews for for the next window. It's not blue; it's a green screen. But that's just to make their green life easier. A video producer means something completely different than it does to Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. They're actually doing this for their own self-interest because that way, when they see a, a screenshot of a, a green screen, basically they know that it's from an insider preview and not a production build. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, that's just them being clever. Um, next, the serialization of untrusted data. Um, basically, it's when you're reading, say, a file, you don't check to see what the, the content of the file is, and then you do something on that data. It's just another way of receiving input and not validating it that it's actually something, say, with the, the parameters that you're expecting or the type of data that you're expecting or even 
I don't know, the, the encoding that you're expecting it and then treating it as if it was. Um, at the most basic level, this can be something as expecting to be reading ANSI encoded text and then receiving UTF-8 where the characters will take more space in memory so everything will look weird and look funny and to the code that affects it in different ways. To your eyes, you'll just see gibberish if you're trying to see the, the content of the file. But basically, this is what it means. Next one is integer overflow or wraparound. Okay, so um, any data type in, in a computer has a specific amount of space that it takes in memory. Mm -hmm. Say an integer, 16 bits or 32 bits or whatever. And when you reach the upper limit of what can be written inside of that space, uh, one of two things can happen. Either the system will crash protecting you because you try to write too much into that memory space and you would have to overflow into the next one, or you cannot just fit that data into that memory space, or it can wrap around. And this is when you get those interesting things that say somebody has a, a given balance on a bank account, and then you, you, you credit him with another dollar and then suddenly his bank account balance is like minus a gazillion dollars just because you added one dollar there. And it's because the, the data type did the wraparound, so it went from max to minimum, and it started from there again. This is also pretty common. Yeah, I've heard of this one a lot too. And um, there's a lot of problems with um, integers in computing because some of the things you'll never think of, like I remember back, with, back in Y2K, I mean, that was uh, maybe not the same thing, but it was still, you know, a number going uh, up and then wrapping around and starting over back at zero. And now we have issues with Chrome and Firefox having three-digit version numbers, which you never thought would be a problem, but apparently that causes problems. So numbers cause a lot of problems, unfortunately. Um, the Unix timestamp, the, that unique number that only increments and that uh, Unix and Linux systems get their date from, um, that will overflow in 2030-something, I believe. And when it overflows, you're going to get another Y2K situation because programs that are not prepared to that will interpret the data wrong and will think they're in the 70s again. Are you so, referring to the Unix epoch or something the, else? The Unix epoch, yes, the time. Yeah, the, that, the that would be a weird situation. To... It will roll over the, because of the, the limit that can fit into that uh, into that number. And uh, Wow. You you know exactly when it will when it will roll over because it increments at a constant rate, one per second. So you will get that problem in twenty thirty something. And that's when Linux administrators everywhere will be contacted for billable work by a lot of companies, and <laughs> they'll, they'll make some money. Um, well, hopefully hopefully it's fixed before that becomes a problem. Well, the other one everybody was making a big fuss about, and then nothing came off it. We're still here, so yeah. Right. Okay, next in the list, improper authentication. <laughs> well, <laughs> the authentication ones before we hit the recording button, it, 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 yeah. it kind of made me chuckle a little bit because it's it's obvious that these are a problem, but it's just crazy that they're as big of a problem as they are. We can actually go over the next three all in all at once. Improper authentication. The next one is use of hard coded credentials, which is also fun, and the other one missing authorization. Okay, yeah, the improper authorization. Enter on the password and username prompt, and don't even just type anything in there. Just, yeah. just press enter, it's fine. The improper authentication, just press enter and get in anyway. Who's care, who cares about authentication? Fine, uh, just, just, just type something in there and just press enter. So if I'm not mistaken, improper authentication, would that be typing in something 
and it's obviously not the right thing, but it still works or it gets you yeah. in. And then missing authorization, maybe leaving both fields blank, <laughs> just <laughs> hitting the login button. You didn't even type anything. Or even not considering some parts of the website that should be protected as actually being protected, say, on a site that allows uploads, um, only protecting the, the index, but not protecting the actual documents behind the login and password, so that if you have the actual URL for each of those elements, you can just get them anyway. Um, that might be missing authorization as well. The use of hard-coded credentials, yeah, um, routers, printers everywhere, you now have um, a government mandate that forbids this, I believe. It was uh, approved some time ago in the US. Um, I wonder, though, because I literally just had my cable modem replaced yesterday. And, and it had one. Yes, the you know because the you know passwords already changed, so I can say this out loud because this is the default on like pretty much every modem by Comcast is um, CUS admin for the username and then high speed for the password, and it's the case on all of them. Um, and the problem is that you know I I changed it to make it secure. I, I just randomly generated the password there just because I don't want. I mean that's my device. That's you know, directly connected to the internet, the public internet. It's, it, you, if you knew my IP address and I didn't change that, you could probably log in um, or by some means. And that was absolutely the case as of yesterday for me. So I don't know if maybe they didn't get the memo or what's going on there. That's or, just a scan all, or just scan all of Comcast uh, IPs and try to find their, their the users of those modems, for example. I'd be shocked if, if people aren't doing that because if people aren't doing that, like that's so low hanging fruit that is just right yeah. there. I, I'm sure they're doing that to death. Yeah, but unfortunately, this doesn't happen only on home stuff. This only ha this also happens on the enterprise. Right. Um, even Cisco has been has done this in the past on their switches and their routers. Um, it is a um, enterprise cable modem, by the way. Yeah. Even worse. <laughs> Even <laughs> to your worse. Point, right? To your yeah, point. Exactly. exactly. Um, yep. But yeah, this is a concern even in the enterprise. Uh, when you're looking at uh, at acquiring new equipment, um, try to get information about any hidden admin accounts or something like that that may be directly built into the firmware. You want the password on those either changed or the accounts disabled or some way to, to change the firmware on those. Um, and you need to get uh, that by in written from the vendor, so that if anything arises from it, you're you're in the clear that you got that you did your due diligence there, um, because that is a problem. The thing here is that the lists with those passwords that comes out that gets leaked over time. So even if it's not today, if it's three years down the line, you're probably going to be using the same equipment. You want to have upgraded all the equipments at the company. So the ones that are still left running with those passwords, they're a liability now. I feel like number 18 is related as well. It's like it skips authentication on the list one number and then 18 <laughs> just goes right back to that again. Missing authentication for critical function. Yeah. Um, Going to the, the modems, for example, this is when, say, reconnecting to the ISP or asking for a new DHCP list from the ISP is not protected by with authentication and all the other advanced functionalities are um, improper separation of privileges here, I would say. Um, and how, how much do you want to bet that number 20 is almost solely due to CHMOD 777? <laughs> Incorrect default permissions. Um, yeah, that's probably it. Or even just having um, 
a password on your exposed web server with the right permissions, which basically means that you have an upload section on your website, even if you don't, <laughs> which is also funny. Um, there are actually scripts that go in and into your system and will report this. Um, they will check the permissions on the common uh, directories and they will tell you if you if you have directories that are too open or too little, for example, say on SBIN or something like that, where the stuff actually needs to be executable and isn't, for example. You have scripts that look this up and will provide you with reports. Um, I can't recall from the top of my head. You had the video about this on your channel. It mm -hmm. was that script that would score your server for for ah, common stuff. Linus, L Y N I S. Exactly. It yeah. will look at this as well. So if you're in doubt, if you ever if you have any directories with uh, improper permissions or something like that, run that script. It will probably let you know if you do. That script is very thorough. Like I was actually surprised. Yeah. Like. Some of the things that are maybe not directly associated with your vulnerability, but are still important, like it'll yell at you if you don't have a um, SSH banner that tells people that they shouldn't be logging in. It's not going to stop anyone, but it's definitely on the list. And it's hundreds of things, I think, if I remember correctly, on that list that it checks for. It's um, And it's free. It's, so it's like just download it and run it. Yeah, it's very extensive. Mm -hmm. Um we have server-side request forgery, which ties into the stuff that we said with uh, cross-site scripting and cross-site request forgery. Um, this is the same thing, but applied to the server side. I actually mentioned this before. Um, next, we have, uh, this is actually a pretty interesting one, concurrent execution using shared resources with improper synchronization. This is uh, race conditions. Um, this started to be a problem when systems started to be multi-core and multi-threaded, and you would have multiple instances of the same application running at once. Not so much web servers because they have done this for many times in the past, for many years, uh, but other types of applications that were not designed from the ground up, um, they could get uh, into these types of problems. Uh, basically, you have threads inside of an application to do things in parallel. Say you're waiting on one thread for something to download from the internet, but you want the interface, the, the UI to keep responding. At the same time, you're writing something to the log on disk and you want that to happen in parallel. You don't want one thing after the other because then the user would see the application is looking choppy or just hanging or something like that, which mm -hmm. is what we saw say in the 90s. Um, everybody complains about Vista and about the, those early versions of Windows and all of that. It's mostly because they didn't have this type of parallel execution. When you have that, you have this stuff that is a race condition. For example, one thread creates a file and another thread tries to, to read that file. You might get into a situation where the read tries to happen before the write, so it will fail. You might either block the application, it might hang forever when you have contention there. Um, there are multiple outcomes from this. And what an attacker will try to look for is trying to get the application into an unexpected state, say where it will accept inputs where it shouldn't, where it will let you read more than it should because it's hanging that thread, trying to do something that it can't. So mm -hmm. it might leave other places of the application open for exploits. 
This is also something system administrators run into on practically, a, I, I, I'll joke and say a daily basis, that's not true, but it feels like it. I mean, containerization runs into this so often, it's ridiculous. Like you think about, you know, your Kubernetes cluster, your, your containers or whatever is, is running fine for a long time. And then, you know, you boot it up one time and then nothing works and you find out that um, this time in particular, the storage volume wasn't mounted first, but the application started running and its underlying data isn't there. And, you know, it, it was just fine because it just happened to start the same way every time. And then until it doesn't, and um, it's a race condition where one thing starts before another, and then you wonder why all your data is gone. Um, there's all kinds of uh, scenarios, security and otherwise, where this actually happens quite often. Um, you actually ran into that with Docker a lot because there is no way to actually coordinate this sort of um, of different containers. And when right. one depends on another one being run, the dumb way of doing that is just try repeating the operation until it actually works. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Doesn't that by okay, default? No, I mean, what happens when you run a container or you launch a container and then for some reason um, it, it can't launch because something's missing? It'll actually have a counter that'll count how many times it had to restart, and then eventually it'll have it'll start a back off timer where it's going to start a delay until the next time it actually goes to check. But it'll keep checking into infinity, and and yeah. that number just keeps on going up. So yeah, I that's mean, a very common from, one. From an automation standpoint, that makes sense because you might doing, be doing some work on one part of infrastructure and you don't want to then manually go and start all the other instances that depend right. on that. When what you're working on is fixed, it comes up and then all everything else will just pick it up and continue working. At the practical level, that's not exactly what happens, either because people did not anticipate the, that behavior or because you're not doing maintenance work, you just decided to take it down permanently. And now you have 20 containers that depend on that, just permanently trying to find the one that went away and they'll never find it. You say that, but I'm working on a video right now where it's really hilarious because I'm, if, if I remember correctly, it might've been the one that shows a tail command. But anyway, I at one point was doing a tutorial on, um, Kubernetes, and then I deleted the, the cluster because I was done with the tutorial. So then I move on to do this other tutorial, which I just so happened to look at the syslog, and I'm writing the video. I'm like, I don't know if I kept this part if I edited it out. I guess I'll have to look and see. But it's like, oh, there's 20,000 lines in the syslog, and it's just like <laughs> the one component or the one container I forgot to delete that's expecting yeah. the others just keep spamming the log, and the disk is filling up. It's like, oh, wow, that's not good. But then it's. I hope I left it in because it's something people see in the real world, and that's yep. um, definitely important to see an example Absolutely. of Absolutely. The next one is uncontrolled resource consumption. Um, this is yeah. something that we're seeing so often right now. Um, there is some work being done on the Linux out of memory um, killer, which is something that will start killing processes when you go when your system is getting low on memory. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing here is that if you don't kill any processes, then the whole system will hang. So the idea is that you kill the processes that are taking out more memory or the ones that are growing faster or something like that, so that you can save the other processes on the system. Mm -hmm. um, people will often complain that it's killing their applications. And I'm looking at your MySQL because database applications will try to take as much memory as is available for them, even if they're not using it immediately. 
Um, so they will be prime targets for this. So I know for a fact there is work being done on the out of memory killer on the kernel at the kernel level, uh, trying to change the behavior because apparently it's too aggressive. And this type of, a, yeah. of, a, of vulnerability, the uncontrolled resource consumption, um, it's something that is very used if you can to cause denial of service. If you can cause the application to keep increasing the either using too much CPU or too much RAM or something like that, you'll get it into a state where it can no longer grow, so it will either hang or die. Yeah, this is a a situation that seems like it's easy to solve, but it ends up not being easy to solve because you might you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Just kill the process that's using the most memory. But you also have to understand that unused RAM is wasted RAM. So how do you find you know a, a, a metric between using too much RAM or not enough, also killing processes that are getting out of control when you know they need the memory and they they actually use up to a certain point of memory? So I, I know that one of the problems in a Linux kernel that I've run into, I think a lot of people agree, I think this might even be what they're trying to fix, which is at the point that the built-in out-of-memory killer kills a process, it's usually too late because at that point, so many the out-of-memory situation has caused so many other things to fail that the entire server is unstable and you end up having to restart it anyway. So then Fedora, if I remember correctly, added early OOM, early out-of-memory daemon, which mm -hmm. is supposed to kill it sooner than the kernel would to try to make the system not be unstable. And now we have systemd looking at solving this by having their own out-of-memory killer. So this is a problem like a lot of people are solving separately, actually, yeah. for some reason. So. So it goes to, yeah. to to prove how important it is and how difficult it is to tackle that properly. Um, right. And I, my ex you my experience said uncontrolled resource consumption. I, I should have said. <laughs> you were going to Atlassian again. Java. Um, yep. Java. Java. It's always no, Java. I didn't. I didn't go that way. But yeah, Java is a prime example of that. Java applications. In fact, it's so much a problem that Java itself, one of the most locked up parameters is how to restrict the memory usage of a given application. You actually pass that as a parameter. You can only use up to this amount of memory because otherwise it will just take everything. It still ends up being a problem because there's different maximums. And then if somebody sets the maximums such that, you know, if you add them together, it's more than the amount of memory the system has, you still run into that problem. And then they learn that the hard way. This doesn't have to be memory. Now, what you're saying there also applies directly to SIN provisioning of hard disk storage or any storage for that matter. Mm -hmm. If you have 10 VMs and you SIN provision them to use 100 gigabytes each, but the storage only has 500, as soon as they start to grow, you're going to have problems. And they won't have reached the maximum, but they will fill all available storage. SIN provisioning, if you don't know, is when you say that the given storage for a virtual machine can, go, can grow up to the virtual machine will see that size that you tell it, but in fact, it's not yet using it on the, the host side. But yeah. it will grow if you decide to throw data at it. So when it does, it can grow up to that maximum that you specify. But if you join many simply provisioned virtual machines on the same host, you might run, run out of space and the machines are just doing what, you're to, what you told them to. Yeah, I mean, you could also look at that with virtualization in terms of CPU as well, because you could have a certain number of cores on each VM that if they all just so happen to, to use as many cores as you have configured, it's more cores than the underlying hypervisor has, and oops, not a good day. But on the CPU level, you'll probably see more performance degradation rather than actually outright killing the, the virtual machines. Um, 
I'm sure that yeah. can be configured on different hypervisors differently, but usually right. what you see is that you'll slow them down a lot, but not kill them. They will still operate. But when you go out of storage space, they will start to die. Yep, they call that I.O. delay on Proxmox, for example. But you're right, it's different on every single platform and it's handled yeah. differently. Yeah. Um, next, we have improper restriction of XML. Uh, I won't get into this. Um, XML has lots of uh, ways of referencing uh, different things that it ha that it can contain. Um, this is letting an XML file point to somewhere that it wasn't supposed to, basically. Um, and the last one on the list, it's improper control of generation of code. This is uh, fancy speak for loading in, uh, malicious plugins. When your application can load plugins, uh, if they load the maliciously crafted one, you get the whole application in problem. Um, they call it code injection here. It's not necessarily code injection. We have talked about code injection in once before. It's more loading malicious plugins. Yeah, plugins cause so many problems. I I don't like them. I'll, I'll be honest. Like I, my mindset with any kind of plugin add-on or whatever it's called on the platform is use as few as you can get away with, and and generally you find that things are a lot better. Usually, when you start working on computers and you have a program that accepts plugins, you'll try to get the library as huge as possible, as big as possible, with as many plugins available, just in case one day you decide that you need one. Um, Right. Further down the line, you realize, okay, I should only add a plugin if I absolutely must. So, yeah, different ways of looking at that. If you don't need it, don't load it. That's true. I mean, especially if you're running GNOME. I mean, how many people say they hate GNOME and it's so unstable, and you look at how many extensions they have, and they have like 45 extensions. Like, well, that's probably why. It's probably not GNOME's fault, but that's <laughs> kind of what we, what we're, the, the time period that we're in, like even at one point, you know, I think they still are. Firefox was like, we're going to start recommending extensions to websites. I'm like, why? No, no, no. We're going to have just like the, you know, back in the day where you opened up someone's Internet Explorer on their Windows computer and you had like uh, 15 toolbars that they've installed. And, and the content portion of the screen is like one eighth of their entire display because they have like toolbars. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. congratulations, Firefox. You're going to do the same thing again, but with add-ons instead of toolbars. <laughs> So true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this completes the list. We skipped a couple in the middle. They weren't too interesting. Um, they have a, a follow-up list that goes from 26 to 40 further down that page that we're going to link. Um, I just want to call out one there, which is improper certificate validation. This has becoming this is becoming more and more important. Um, the certificates have to be renewed more often. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't get as much attention as they deserve. You just when they get the certificate there and get it running because the application is asking for one, so you don't pay the attention. You might not get the certificate, the right information, um, and then the application will not validate that properly or something like that, or just accept anything that you pass it. Um, this can be a source of problems because certificates are at the heart of basically any encrypted link, uh, communication that an application does today. Um, this will probably be higher up the list next year. Yeah. Um, and yeah, on the rest of the page, this is a pretty extensive look at this. They have more information about uh, the movements in the table, if that's your your interest, if you're interested in knowing more about this. Um, just know that buffer overflow was the first one on the previous list and is still number one on this one and will probably be number one on the one on next year. Um, 
And yeah, this was a look at this 25 most common code problems that, that are at the heart of basically all the vulnerabilities that you see out there. I think this is also a good episode to bookmark because of all the different types of attacks and things. And it's almost like, well, not as bad, like medical terminology. There's a whole language about different things. And the same is true with security when you have cross-site scripting and things like that, that you don't necessarily, like we were alluding to earlier, have to be a software engineer to understand this. You can understand from a basic level, like we told you, that what the high-level overview of these individual problems are, so you can have that conversation with your security person, if that's not you, hey, I think I might have uh, spotted a buffer overflow here. You know, you're speaking their language. I think that's really important. Or if they ask you to test a new application or something like that. There is a, an interesting class of tools called fuzzers. They are specifically tailored to, to do input validation to see if the application is doing proper input validation. They will basically, you will basically point that either to a web page if it's a web application or to an actual application, and they will start to, ins to type gibberish into all the input fields and see if the application accepts it as valid. Um, more often than not, they will find some fields that are not properly checked, and that's something that you can go back to your developers and say, aha, I found this bug here in your application. Please fix this before going into production. Yeah, absolutely. It could uh, that could definitely help. Um, I feel like if everybody understands at least the basic lingo, they don't have to be a computer scientist. But I think it just yeah. helps people understand what the general problems are that we're all trying to solve or we're all dealing with. Yeah, you should know the the playfield where you're where you're yeah. doing your operations. That's a better way to put it. <laughs> all right, so. We will have a link in the usual places to this article. You don't have to read the whole thing. Um, some of it, to me, looks like a wiring diagram um, in the pictures, <laughs> but it's kind of hard to follow when you scroll down. But you don't have to scroll down. You can just stick to the top 25 at the very top, and there's um, links that, you know within that that you could click on for more information. Um, and if nothing else, you could start you know your research with this and start reading books or articles about these vulnerabilities and then educate yourself even further if you wish to do so. But this is a great, if nothing else, a great landing page for the top 25 issues and what they actually are. So, yeah. yeah. So thanks everybody for joining us and until the next one. Yep. See you around. Bye.